welcome to another session of On The Couch. And this week, it's a very special session and a very different session, I have to say. Uh, you're used to hearing me talk about uh, money and finance and doing podcasts on money and finance a lot. But this week, I'm joined by a really, really special guest, an old buddy of mine, Mr. Paul Christie, who well, some of you will be familiar with from his work with Mondo Rock and Party Boys from the 80s. And Paul is a bass player extraordinaire. So before we set off on this uh, musical journey, I will give you this disclaimer. This disclaimer will not provide you with any kind of monetary value at all. It will not enhance your wealth, and it will only add to the enrichment of your life rather than anything else. Paul has been part of rock and roll in Australia's DNA for four decades. Extraordinary career that he's had. And uh, I've been privileged and lucky enough to actually have played on stage with Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you now to Mr. Paul Christie. Thank you very much, Henry. And I will say it's a great pleasure to be here to talk to all the good people that will be receiving this, uh, this session. And um, it's great to see you again. It's been a little while. It has been a little while. We yes. bump into each other every now and then at Palm Beach when I'm walking the dog. Yes. But um, we saw ships that pass in the night. That is true. To some extent. The, the, the morning dog walking is almost becoming like what, what was once going to the pub because you see yes. everyone out walking instead of everyone drinking. It is our COVID <laughs> therapy, isn't it? It is our COVID Very therapy true. at the moment. Now, now yeah. Paul, um, first off, Yes. You grew up in Brisbane, didn't you? I did. So so in Brisbane, what, what was the music you were listening to when you were growing up? What turned you on? The the most the most pivotal experience I had with music of of this ilk that we're talking about, which is fundamentally rock music, was in nineteen sixty six. I think it was November nineteen sixty six, and dad had bought me a great big valve telefunk and radio because he felt guilty about the fact that I had the terrible skin disease, psoriasis, Ooh. and couldn't leave the house that much right. because of, of sort of maltreatment from other people. Mm. Uh, you know, it's like, it's human nature to torture people that are already being tortured. Yeah. So um, he bought me this radio and we tuned it up. And the first radio station, because I sort of knew where it was on the band, was 4IP, which was the rock station, right. AM radio. We tuned it to, to 4IP and miraculously, within milliseconds, Pete Townsend started playing My Generation. Ah, that is quite a song to be introduced to. And that was the first time I'd heard it. And I sat there slack-jawed, gobsmacked at, at what I was hearing. And, I, and in that instant, in that, in that, well, not that instant, but in that three minutes, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. That was it. Bang. I wanted to make noise like that yeah. and voice my frustration. Yeah. And that was the course that I, that was the decision I made when I was really, very, very quite young. And I stuck to that course for, for many decades. Yeah. So the bass. Yeah. I mean, um, you've listened to my generation. You would have seen the windmill arm of uh, Pete Townsend going round and round that beautiful bass of John Entwistle, yes. who is no longer with us. Why the bass? What turns you on to the bass as, as your primary instrument? I know you play others. Yeah. Um, I've been asked that quite a bit, and, and in all honesty, I actually don't have a coherent answer to that, yeah. apart from the fact that it had two less strings than a guitar. <laughs> Simpler, yes. Simpler, yeah. but I like the throb. The throb. Yes, like the pulse. I'd like the pulse of the bottom end. That's that's what I, the first thing I'd listen for in recording, so I was being 
subliminally guided by a force that I knew nothing about. It was telling me to focus on the bottom end of the songs. And so when I heard Satisfaction, I was listening closely to what Bill was doing and and Jack Bruce and all these people of that era. Once I started getting a broader listening ear. And um, so I thought, that sounds like a lot of fun. And um, it to, to some extent, it required less theoretical knowledge of all the chordal shapes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, um, and I've really enjoyed playing bass. It's great. I, I love the way you play bass. Yeah, it's say. aggressive. It is aggressive, and you do play it aggressively. Big bam boom. Big bam boom. <laughs> yeah. So, so being a Brisbane boy, of course, yeah. you had to obviously get out of Brisbane, I, I guess, to, to, to hit did. the big time or to, to try and make your mark in the music world. Yeah. And what was that first step like? Well, uh, I'd always, I'd had decided to do it for quite some time because I became a follower of, an, of a, quite a few Australian bands as well. And uh, there was a little, there was underground press and uh, and sort of normal press that would write stories about about the bands coming out of Melbourne. In those days, there was Zoot and and uh, Jeff Crozier's Magic Works and Fanny Adams and Chain. <laughs> there was a lot of incredible, incredibly gifted Australian bands that were really matching it with whatever was coming from overseas outside of the Beatles. Yeah, because no one could match the Beatles. No, yeah. So. Um, I was very, very keen about that. I never actually played in the Brisbane scene, but I did have an involvement with the Brisbane music scene. I was uh, once, and to my great um, entertainment, I was elected the only ever Anglican president of the Inderpilly Catholic Youth Club. (laughs) I didn't tell them. (laughs) I didn't tell them. Uh And I thought, right, you know, okay, so I started running um, river cruises and and gigs in the Indrapilly Catholic Youth Club Hall, where they were always sold out. And of course, the Catholic Church, being as it was, Father McQuaid was rather impressed with the amount of revenue I was making the church as well as myself. <laughs> they were keen on that revenue. <laughs> yeah. So I had I had all these um, all these great Brisbane bands come through, and that was that was very motivating. There was Leroy Capitella, Spike, Michael Turner in session. Uh, um, the Coloured Balls, all these incredible brands, the bands had just got like like rain in the tropics uh, on dry ground. The grass just went, Whoo! yeah, and and just all of a sudden, this culture was just there. It was so freaking exciting, yeah. and that's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to go south where the, where the heart of it is, which was um, Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. Right. So what it was, I I got a job up there, and I bought uh, an ex Queensland Police lockup paddy van. Uh, in, in police pale blue, and I drove this HD Holden police car <laughs> to Sydney. And a, and a friend of mine said, when you come to Sydney, he said, we got all this ground at Terry Hills. You can park your car in the front yard, sleep in that, and you can use the showers around the sheds. And I said, dream, great, <laughs> a, gr- a dream result. Yeah. So that's where I lived when I first got here. And then I started getting around seeing all the bands and getting really amped up and excited and got a job washing, char- uh, washing cars at North Shore Chrysler. Moved into this place at St Leonard's, and it all started happening from there. And then um, I got in my first ever band, which when I was playing harmonica in the Buckshot Blues Band, and they encouraged me to dance on the bars wherever we and play harmonica and, and do all this stuff, which That's I did. Cool. Yeah, and I was really quite young. I think I was still on P plates, and uh, so I loved that show side of it. The, the, you know, like being being, you know, for me and for just the young bloke who hadn't done this before. Thinking it was all pretty wild, and uh, and so my enjoyment level just kept rising and rising and rising. Where I had the, the greatest thing that did happen to me though was that my bestest ever friend, who's still with us, 
uh, who's older than me, we met when my parents sent me to my godmother's place in Sydney to work at the Swim and Squash Centre at Pennon Hills over Christmas holidays. Mm -hmm. Eddie again introduced me to a whole bunch of music. And then when I went back home, kept in touch. But then when I got older and came came down to, to Sydney to live, I spoke to him and he said, oh, what are you doing? And he, and he said, why don't you come out and work with us at Jans? So Jans, Jackson and Story, was the first ever real proper concert touring production company in Australia that, that had big aspirations. So they had a big international echo truck, big 4550s, big 4560s, all JBL equipment. They designed their own amps. And, the, and so before I knew it, like so quickly, I was actually out on international tours before I owned a bass. <laughs> right. working on the other side but yeah, i yeah. saw the other side yeah, yeah and there was there was a couple of pivotal pivotal moments one was um doing the first ever elton john tour of australia and when we went to soundcheck and it was all set up and i'd done all the lugging and everything i had to do they started playing and i nearly fainted <laughs> at how powerful that three-piece was like was like led zeppelin jimmy hendrix powerful yeah because elton would just be like smashing he had such physical strength yeah. and and um nigel and d murray the drummer were like just virtuosos even then so later and later on down the track elton john was in australia and mondo rock had achieved a platinum status uh, award for the chemistry album so there was a um, presentation night set up for for us in the rocks i can't remember the venue but it was upstairs in the rock it was that famous place that everyone went to so there we were mondo rock lined up like schoolboys getting getting their report cards <laughs> their shorts and their socks and stuff they're all standing there feeling a little bit sort of you know not not uncomfortable at all but but we were just sort of giggling about it because it was it was fun and uh the record company chap comes out and says ladies and gentlemen we have a, a special guest to give mondo rock their platinum album for chemistry he's a big fan of ross's songwriting so we we immediately were scratching our heads going who could this be cole joy who is it i don't, <laughs> no, I don't know who it was anyway so he then went on to say ladies and gentlemen please make welcome elton john elton john came out and he spotted me and i spotted elton and i thought there's that guy who played the piano on that tour <laughs> <laughs> and he was thinking there's that kid that was that was doing working at jazz on that tour so he he got my platinum record first from from recollection and gave it to me and he said paul it's so good to see you again he said i knew you'd do well and congratulations here's your platinum record and i said oh it's my first ever platinum record and he said well that makes it even better and then he gave the rest of the band their records and uh, and they were all looking at me going what's going on here no everyone was a bit confused by it all how how no one sort of knew that, that elton and i had become had, had become known to each other and, yeah. and were friends from that tour when i was working as, as a roadie so that was a, a really truly great moment it was a sort of a pivotal moment for me to get my first of a platinum record and have it give it to me and the band was very happy and 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 mondo rock continued on that was for chemistry was it? yeah for yeah. chemistry and yeah. continued on to make another album fairly shortly after that called nuevo nuevo mondo and uh i remember i was living in melbourne and i looked up in the sky and i saw a united airlines plane come in i said ah that's peter mckeon the american producer who produced who can it be now and that men at work album mm. uh, he was key came back to produce our record and he landed and i was just outside the house in a park with the kids 
um, in the street and we're just throwing a ball around. And, and so this, this tennis ball just came through the air and I put my hand up and caught it. And it was, it was soft and it, 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 it sunk into the tip of the, my little finger on my left hand and, and spirally mm. broke the bone Ooh. in a spiral fracture like that. I know that people watching can't listen, but my fingers going around in circles. And I'm going to do into a relatively deep state of panic because I had to be front and centre in a studio the next day. So I raced down to, to Melbourne Hospital. It was just, it wasn't far away, it was just down the road. And I was trying to explain to the interns how critically important it was to, for me to have my fingers sewn back together so I could play this on this record. And um, then the, the curtain, the divider came apart and this, this very English gentleman said to me, oh, Paul, he said, I've been listening to your story. What a plight. Mm, mm. <laughs> and he said, so my name's Clive. He said, I'm a plastic surgeon and I'm out here giving these pea platers at this hospital some tips on how to do it better. And I said, oh, I like you immediately, Clive. He said, come with me, I'll fix your finger. And, and by the grace of God, this guy just heard this conversation. We went upstairs and straight away and he he got me all ready and, and uh, pulled out this this drill and drilled three holes through my finger and put in three titanium pins whilst I was conscious. I was pleading with him to knock me out. <laughs> right. Okay. That would have been painful. Well, he, I did have a painkiller, but um, he, he said, now come back tomorrow morning we'll just check it. I said, I've got to be in the studio in the morning. And he said, that's highly unlikely, dear boy. <laughs> so uh, he then strapped it and he did some stuff. And as your listeners wouldn't be able to see, but you can see, it grew at a sort of a 30 degree angle. I, I can vouch for it. Yeah. It's not the right angle. It no, it's be. not the right angle. So it was still sore. And I said, okay, I'll go to the studio. And, and, and off we went. And I'd recorded some tracks, but it got so painful I had to stop. So that's you know a lesson to be learned yeah. and not to be too gallivant and to always look after your hands. Yes, especially if you're a bass player. Yeah. Yeah. So what I learned was to was to wear Kevlar gloves or really strong gloves if ever I'm doing anything else. Yes. And that stood me in good stead and it's protected them ever since. So, so those days in the music scene, this is the early 80s, 80, 82. Yep. And, and I've seen you on social media um, talking about the gigs that you were playing. And you were playing every night and twice on Sundays. Yes, that it is true. Prolific. It yeah. was prolific. The music scene was just extraordinary in those days. For years on end. It must have been great fun. Look, it was... I say quite often, and I'll, I'll say to all your listeners here, that I am so grateful that my parents conceived me in 1953 because it put me slap bang at the start of the real rise of pub rock. Mm. And even when, even before that, when I was really, really young playing, like I, I had a pea plate, I think, when I was, was out doing shows, there were still plenty of, of places to play for relatively unknown bands. It was, there were so many places to play in Sydney. So I had a funk band, which was really great fun to play. We were playing in Parramatta and Cremorne and, and, and all over the place. And and um, that was how I was discovered by the drummer of the Kevin Borich Express, who, who really wanted me to be in the band because the very, very famous and just recently departed uh, Tim Partridge uh, was had, had left the Kevin Borich Express to, to do something else. I wasn't quite sure. And Tim was my great hero. So uh, um, we could play six nights a week. The Kimbotch Express used to play, uh, it would play, wouldn't, it would not play Monday, but we'd play 
Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, conventional gigs. Then we do it. Then we do what we call a triple on Saturday afternoon, <laughs> early evening. <laughs> and then we go to Bananas at, at, at St Kilda, if we were so in Melbourne, yeah. and start at 1.30 in the morning. Yeah. Finish at 3.30 and then get in the cars and drive to Sydney and then play the Mossman Hotel that night. Wow. And that's just what everyone was doing, just non-stop. So you got really good at it and your hands got really tough and you were very attuned to music and the musical world and the musical environment. It's, it's, it's all you did. We just lived it and breathed it. And I am so grateful that, ha that that happened to me because if you do love music, then there's nothing better than playing it all the time. No. Yeah. And so then we'd have, um, like Michael Chug used to manage Kevin's band. He says, right, hey, here, layabouts. We're giving you some time off. You've got two days off. <laughs> They've been on the road for a year or something. <laughs> you got two days off. And uh, then we'll laugh about it because we were just so used to playing. And and, and then um, and that band was packed up and sent to America. Chuggy took us to America on pretty short notice. And we went and lived in America for a year. Wow. How was that? That would have Unbelievable. been extraordinary. Oh, we lived in Los Angeles and, and we rehearsed a lot. And we wrote, Chuggy had rented this house at Agura, um, which... Uh, to our horror, was right in the path of those those enormous fires in LA in 1978 that wiped out Bob Dylan's house, I think, and and they lost all those tapes um, of the band and all that mm. sort of stuff. That fire, mm. that just just it was uncontrollable, and um, we saw that coming at us in that house. But but uh, yeah, we did a lot of rehearsal and a lot of just trying to write songs, hit songs, and which wasn't working too well. And we did demos and then we did shows. We opened for ACDC in Los Angeles <laughs> because we were Australian, yeah, yeah, which was the biggest thrill of my life at that point of time because yeah. uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit sort of sentimental and I'm very attached to music and people who make music. And it was a really big thing for me as for me just individually because I was still quite youngish yeah. to open for ACDC. Yeah, so what are you, 25 then? Probably, yeah. That's, that's a... 78, 50, yeah, 25, that's... yes. Pretty yeah. good for a twenty-five-year-old, only for ACDC. Yeah, and and that was great. And then we we toured through America. We we drove everywhere, and we made this record. And then we came back home and did a big tour. And we we played the concert of the decade at the steps of the Opera House in seventy late seventies. That where, where there was about a hundred thousand people there. There's photos of it you can Google, and um, that was an that was an even more amazing spirit experience for me. I'd never stood in front of so many people. It was like, uh, it was quite indescribable. It was, it was quite scary in some ways too, because yeah, be. there's no way out. Yeah. But it was great. But the ferry that picked us up in Milsons Point dropped us at the wrong spot. <laughs> and we had to walk through the crowd oh, to get okay. to get to the Opera House stage with our guitars. Yeah. But that turned out to be pretty friendly. Everyone's going, yeah. oh, yeah, beauty, Kev. Right, oh, get APZ. You know, yeah. and by the time we got there, we our, we our backs, our backs were very sore from being back slapped. But it was a wonderful, wonderful and scary thing to to, to go through. Mm. And then we got up and played, and and every other band in Australia played on that show, and it went on for hours. And it was I've got photos of it where it's, it's people as far as you can see, they went right up into the into the botanical gardens, mm. and they never had another big show like that because it it destroyed about a third of the botanical gardens. Because of people just just standing around, not yeah, yeah. maliciously destroying it. Yeah. It's an extraordinary experience. And, we, and when we got back, we also played Victoria Park with Dragon, and it was, there was about fifty or sixty thousand people at that show. 
and um, that was pretty amazing too. So, you know, from, from from playing in funky soul bands at War and Peace and Parramatta on Thursday night, I, I'd been picked up and transported to Los Angeles yeah. and became good friends with all these people. Like Lee Sklar, the bass player, became friends with him and went to this into a session with him and, yeah. and and had wonderful experiences and met met all the guys um, from uh, that British band, Supertramp, and um, oh, Supertramp, and saw Earth, Wind, and Fire wow. um, in the seventies. Live show was just, was just made me feel completely insignificant. I was watching this extraordinary <laughs> stuff they were doing. They were. They were. Yeah, I yeah. remember watching them on top of the pops in the UK on TV, and they were they were out there. They were and, fantastic. and one of the other great great things that happened over there was John Money was an Australian guy who got a job man, uh, tour managing. He tour managed the Ribbon Band, but he also managed tour managed um, Fleetwood Mac because it was kind of this this mafia, mm. and Fleetwood Mac was on the periphery of the Australians because of Billy Thorpe. They loved Billy, and he loved them. And, and he said, oh, if you guys need anything, let me know. So I popped up and I said, I, well, I need a bass amp and Kevin needs a guitar amp and stuff. He said, okay. He said, I'll go over to Fleetwood Mac's warehouse. I've got this warehouse. It's it's the size of a small small, a small town, uh, a small country. I said, he said, there's so much stuff in there. And he said, okay, yeah. So he rang up. He said, oh, I got you a bass amp. And um, and he got Kevin an amp and, he, and someone delivered it over. So he said, and out came this acoustic 360 American bass amp. And I looked at it and I thought, oh. Wow, they're really special, and they were at the time. And he said, "Yeah, yeah, some jazz guy in Florida, uh, he, um, the, the bass player in, in Fleetwood Mac, John McVie, bought it off this this jazz guy in Florida." And and then the penny just dropped that he'd actually bought one of Jacko Pistorius's bass amps, and I was playing through Jacko's bass amp <laughs> via Fleetwood Mac, and I thought, "Well, I'd better do something good. You better make it <laughs> I seriously work better do something good." Yeah, and those. Those experiences just kept happening and happening and happening and, you know, things that you just would never imagine would happen to you. Mm. And then when we opened for ACDC that time, I remember looking up in, 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 uh, in the bleachers upstairs, not the bleachers, but the, the upstairs seated section. Mm. And when we finished playing and I, and, I, and I looked up, and there's George Benson in a three-piece suit, tapping his hands on his knees, <laughs> watching ACDC play. <laughs> and he, I think he must have seen us play too. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, this is a really wild town. Anything can happen. You know? <laughs> Anything can happen. And then along came Mondo Rock. Yes. And that was an extraordinary period. Well, it was. Because I got back from America and somehow, I don't know how Ross got my number. He must have got it from someone, from someone, from someone. And Ross Wilson rang me to say, uh, would you like to come down and, and, and be in the next lineup of Mondo Rock? Because he'd seen me play with Kevin. Right. And he obviously, you know, he... he he figured out that I could actually play rock pretty hard, but I could play other things. And um, I I thought about that and I said, that sounds pretty good because I was a major, major, major fan of Daddy Cool, especially Daddy Cool Live. That band had incredible swing and feel mm. and they wrote really, really clever songs. Ross wrote great songs. Mm. In the meantime, I'd also bumped into Robbie Hurst and he told me that Bear the bass player, their bass player called Bear, was leaving. And he kind of in some way said, well, what are you doing? Are you back in town? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went, oh, okay. And But I'd already spoken to Ross. So I was in a bit of a quandary as to whether I should then badger mm. Robbie right. about trying to get him to be not all. Oh, that would have been interesting. Well, it would have. I mean, truth be known, 
because of, I, I like playing violently. I like breaking strings and you know loud and and and. and but with groove, I, I probably would have been better suited musically to um, to mid oil, mm. um, if that if that ever was to, an opportunity. Mm. But um, I'm glad I took the mondo rock path because I got to do a lot of different things on bass, and the songwriters are really clever, mm. really clever songwriters. And Eric wrote so many great songs like Chemistry and State of the Heart, and and there's just so many great songs floating around, and it was really a joy in the early days to to we rehearsed we rehearsed like five days a week every every single day we'd be in there and eric would have a new song and we'd go through the tunes and um we're very very lucky that that between ross and eric we had more songs than we could actually ever play we'd pick out pick mm. the eyes out of yeah. what suited us it's kind of physiologically i play like this a lot of downstrokes aggressive yeah. and the drummer plays on, on the beat not ahead of the beat so we had a really good groove and a good thing going and uh, in the early days before we recorded Chemistry, we, we, we were demoing lots and lots and lots of songs. And, and Gil Matthews, actually, from Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, he was the original drummer with Mondo Rock. Right. And uh, for that lineup, I should say, because there was one lineup before um, the lineup of Chemistry, and then uh, Ross broke that, broke that band up and started all fresh. And, and Gil Matthews was like playing with Billy Cobham or, or Buddy Rich put together. He is amazing and and uh, like frighteningly, just aggressive and 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 chops to burn. He he toured, he toured playing drums with Buddy Rich and Doreen Creeper when he was about eight years old, <laughs> because they saw him play in Australia when they came here. Yeah, and they said, "Oh, this little little Gil yeah. can he get up and play?" And he's playing conventional drip um, grip drums yeah. with um with Buddy Rich. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty, good. A, pretty good. That's pretty good. Pretty good. So, um, so that band was really for you know really really like explosive and, and, and fantastic, and and Gil recorded on 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 the Chemistry album, and then Billy Thorpe was in America, of course, and asked Gil to come and play with him in America because Billy was starting to have a hit records in America or one hit record, I right. should say, and uh, and he had Lee Sklar in that band, so it was, it was Gil Lee and Billy, and so we got a new drummer and and uh, in JJ Hackett, who was just the most beautiful just slightly behind the beat on the snare all the time. Mm. This must felt then our music felt really to me it felt much more beautiful and, and much more relaxed and really musical. And and so yeah, that's the band that went on to have the gold record, the platinum record, and we recorded two albums and and we were working like five and six nights a week all the time. Then we come back and go to the studio. So there wasn't much rest. Mm. But you know something, if someone offered me that scenario again now I'd be so happy. <laughs> I'd be so happy I know, I know. to be going out and be able to do that again all around the country and make so many people so happy. It really is a great thing to be able to do, just to mm. make people happy. It's much better than being a jail warden, you know. <laughs> Definitely. So then came the Party Boys. Yes. Then, then came the Party Boys. Tell me about the Party Boys. What was the what was the genesis of that that band? Well, I was I was very burnt out and worn out, as we all were, with with Mondo Rock. So I, I actually went back to Sydney. And I just had this idea, I, and I rang James Rain, and I said, "James, I've got this idea." I said, "I want to put this party, this band called the Party Boys, together, where and and and, the, and what we'll do is, we'll run our own shows, but we'll keep all the money, so it won't go to hmm. the agency or the management or or paying off a PA. 
or paying down the debt on the records, recordings and stuff. We'll just take all the money. And he went, I'm in. And he <laughs> was in Sydney at the time, yeah. recording Return to Eden, filming Return to Eden. He said, I can do it. I said, well, okay, we'll do it. Not this weekend, but next weekend. He said, mm. done. So I, so I got the Angels drummer and I asked Ian Moss and Kevin Boyce on guitars and James and myself. That was the five piece. And then right at the last minute, Mossy got called away, like army call up to chisel. Right. And he said, oh, but, but he says, Harvey, Harvey James lives at my place. I said, oh, Harvey James was, was a fantastic British guitar player. Yeah. So that was the first lineup. And so we went out and did the first show at Moby's in our neighborhood. As you, yeah. And um, in, a, in a venue that was licensed for, for 180, we put in about 600 people. <laughs> um, much to the joy of the management. Yeah. <laughs> they needed all that money at the time. Yeah. And we recorded that show at the Manly Vale Hotel via the ABC and Triple J with Keith Walker. Okay. And Keith had done a lot of recording with my funk bands uh, before the Kevin Borich Express. And and he he brought all the ABC technology down in a big outside broadcast van, recorded it, and all I had to do was give them the rights to air it first. That was right. it. And so that album went gold. Okay. Um, and it, it has the most fabulous playing on it. But the drummer, it's like Buzz Bidstrup from the Angels, he's drumming and it, it just sort of holds everything and it's beautiful. And you just sit on top of it. And, and Kevin was playing fantastically and Harvey and James was, you could tell James was nervous, but it actually helped him because it made him more, a bit more aggro. Mm. You know, and, he was, and he was doing Willie Deville songs and all sorts of you know, Rolling Stone songs. Yeah, yeah. Very very nothing like James Rain. Right. And people saw him in a very different light and loved it. Okay. And so so then James had to go back to work and, and I was friends with Richard Clapton. I said, Dickie, I'm calling you up. Here are your papers. Here are your, here are your, here are your call-up papers. And Richard Clapton joined the band. Mm. And then we did sort of slightly different repertoire again, but stuff that really suited him, like The Stealer. We did The Stealer from free and he could fit into that groove. And, and we did a lot of touring with Richard. And then it was time for him to have a rest. <laughs> he yeah. was getting a bit worn out. Yeah. And uh, and then I recruited Shirley and I got Robin Riley on guitar and Buzz and myself and Boris. And that band was the most ferocious, unbelievably powerful band in the country that would match anyone. And, and we stayed together for quite a while and made a record called, I can't remember what we called it. I think it was No Song Too Sacred, I think it was called. <laughs> but he could do... Robert Plant and Sting and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. That's and, hard to do. Oh. That is hard to do. And he and he didn't drink and he and he was on the ball every night. Mm. And the band was was vicious. It was so much fun. And I got that famous DY kneeboarder photographer, Peter. His name will come to me in a minute. Um, I, I was so fond of this guy. I was great friends with him. And Peter, I can't remember. And he did the album cover and the, he did the shots around the seaplane base. At Palm Beach for that album cover, mm. and uh, then um, Shirley had to go. Shirley had, I think, was then commenced more uh, did more stuff on TV. That's what he did. He wouldn't have to do more TV. So then I just had a rest for a while, mm. and then I had this notion of asking a guitar player who I'd idolised for years, Joe Walsh, the American guy from the Eagles, and I, by using some very Spartan online technology, I was actually able to send him a digital message from a, a Tandy TRS-80 Model 100. Um, I imagine quite a few listeners would probably have had one of those in their youth. And uh, he joined the band. We got him at the airport <laughs> and we started on a tour. We, we, we toured for about a year 
made a record at yeah. Moby's. Yeah, Moby's. At Moby's. And uh, I think Joe was always scared to hear that record <laughs> because he he wasn't really sure. Right. So about three – and every time the Eagles come here, Joe's entourage brings him up and, and I cook for them. Right. And we have a we have a gathering. And it wasn't until the, the, the very last time that they – no, the time before last of they toured, he came up. And uh, I just put the CD on. I said, hey, hey, J-Dub, listen to this. Listen to this. And it was like a, a, a Springsteen song we did with him called Cover Me. I know the song. Yeah. That's a good song. And he goes, oh, wow, that sounds great. Who's that? And I said, that's you. <laughs> he didn't remember. Yeah. And I said, that's you and yeah. Boric and me and Richard and yeah. Mark Hunter. Yeah. And then he, he oh, he, he said, that's my guitar. I go, that's it. And... I could see him go, because I think he must have been hoping and praying that that record is never released because right. it must have been so bad. Yeah, but it was actually so it good, wasn't. and yeah, he 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 was really like, oh my god, that's really in. The, he kept saying that's really in the pocket, and that and when the Americans say that, they mean it's really sitting properly. It's it's good swing and stuff. Yeah, and I played him one more track, and then he just walked away shaking his head. And see, I said, I said, I told you everything was okay, you know, and. Uh, and then he, uh, on, on part of that tour, there was one night when he called me up to his room and he was talking to an American voice. And he said to me, oh, PCs, you know, I've got a new lineup. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And I wasn't really sure what he meant. He meant for the next tour. Mm. And I'd already thought of a lineup for the next tour without Joe. But anyway, he said, he said, say hello to Stu. And I picked up, the, I said, hello, Stu. I said, this is Paul. I'm the bass player. And he goes, oh, okay. Great. And he said, oh, I've heard all about you. I said, oh, that's very nice. And uh, I said, what do you do? He said, I play the drums. I said, ah, oh, great. I said, so um, obviously, do you live on the West Coast or the East Coast? He said, on the West Coast. I said, very good. I said, so um, uh, could I ask what band are you playing? And he said, oh, it's a three-piece band with these two palmy assholes. You know, he was like, they always fought all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, what's the band called? He said, it's called The Police. <laughs> And I said, Stuart Copeland from the police. I said, look, I said, I'm, I'm, I said, it's hard for me to be speechless, but I, I pretty much am. And I said, so you've, you've, you've agreed to, this, to, to join in? And he goes, yeah. And I said, I said, I have to go and lie down. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I was so excited. And then I said, I'll hand you back to Joe. And he said, oh, and he said, oh, and it's so great that Stevie's playing. And I said, Oh, oh, now which Stevie's that? I thought Stevie Wright. Or yeah, who, yeah. who was it? You know, yeah. he said, "Now Stevie Winwood, he can do it." And I, at this point, I was beginning to think that Joe had slipped me some LSD or something, <laughs> and I just was all imagining or dreaming this, but it, I wasn't. And I, so I gave the phone back to Joe, and he said, "Just you know, just have this conversation. Now keep in touch with Stevie, tell him the approximate dates, and then we'll get back to him. We're all going to do this." And I was just sitting there, just, just completely. Slack jawed in disbelief at the thought of this streak of streak of six foot streak of skin and bones from Brisbane, who came to Sydney and worked as a roadie, is 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 about to go on tour in his band with Joe Walsh, Stevie Winwood, and Stuart Copeland. And I thought I got back to my room and, and I went to sleep. And when I woke up in the morning, I thought that was one funky, funky dream. <laughs> and I and I was really confused and. Uh, and then Joe said to me in the, in the in, in the van, he says, "I oh, said that's such good news, isn't it?" And I, th I said, "Do you mean about yeah, 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 about Stu and Steve?" And I went, "Holy crap!" 
Christ. I said, and I, I didn't know where to go with it. I was, I was so excited and so dumbfounded. And uh, so we just kept, we kept on that path. But then uh, a few months later, we we're sort of ready to close it off and get ready. And then Stevie Winwood's record label said, you've got to make another record because his album, I think, had gone platinum back in the high life again. Mm. They wanted another album straight away. And that was good for Stevie. So, so that never happened. But it kind of did happen because did happen. they'd all agreed to it. Yeah. But it never what physically a, what, happened. What a thing that would have been. Oh, so, that would have been something. So, like Walsh, Copeland, and Windward, and I, I could always see the poster with with me straggling along behind. Ray Play, playing at Moby's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with me sort of trying to catch up with them, puffing all the time, playing in it. Oh my goodness! And I, just, I really do wish that had happened. But yeah. uh, then in '89, uh, oh sorry, oh, that was um, that was um, Mark and Joe. And that then we we did another tour after that, and it was nearly as successful as the first one. But a wonderful experience to have someone playing with you with all that American depth of soul and experience that those people have. Mm. It far transcends, um, you know, a, a lot of mere mortals. Mm. When the Eagles write songs and James Gang and that, it's just another world, another level up, and, and it's really great to be around that. It's quite quite a leveling, to be perfectly honest. And I was trying to, you know, play as best as I could all the time, which after a while it just sort of it settled down. But mm. then uh, after that, um, I'd asked Richard Harvey, the, the Divinals drummer, let me think, let me get this chronologically right, to um, he got in touch with Alan Rogan, who's work, who worked with the Rolling Stones from Doc Yonks. As I believe Alan Rogan was, was, he was like the general sort of logistics manager, mm. equipment and stuff. He didn't actually manage them, I don't think. Who's there? No, he's a road road manager. Yeah, and and he organised a chat with uh, Keith Richards, and and we had we had, um, I think this is chronologically right. So we had this chat, and we said, "Oh, we've got this band, and it's you know you, you can relax." And because he was fighting with Mick at the time, and they, and they weren't doing anything, they were just like this. Yeah, he said, "Oh yeah," and so he kind of in principle thought it was a great idea. And so I thought, this is just getting madder and madder and, <laughs> getting, yeah. and better and better. Better and better. But the lesson was, people said, how do you do that? And I said, it's a simple answer to that. You just ask. Yeah. <laughs> just ask in a very normal, do you want to join my band? And and they're so sort of amused by it. They go, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> and so, so Keith and Mick kissed and made up. And then they went straight in the studio and recorded Steel Wheels. But then in uh, 80... Um, 89, I think it was. Um, Stevie Ray Vaughan was in Australia, and then we, uh, the, the CEO of Sony organized Stevie Ray Vaughan to come into the CB, what was then the CBS Records office. And I met with Stevie Ray, and he's only a little guy. And I sat down at the table and I said, oh, Stevie Ray, I said, you know, I said, I said, I'm so happy to be here. I said, when you talk, it just sounds like music, <laughs> you know. And he just went, oh, shucks, you know. And I told him about it, and he agreed. He actually agreed and, and signed on the dotted line. Stevie Ray Vaughan, myself on bass, Richard Harvey on drums, and Kevin Broach on guitar, Mal Logan on keys. It'll be two guitars, two voices, and Mal and Richard and myself. And he went back to America and, and fairly quickly went and did that outdoor show in the snow. Then Eric Clapton said, Stevie, if you want to go home, you can have my seat. I'll go tomorrow on the chopper. Stevie went on the chopper, went out over the mountain, crashed, and he died. And um, I was just shattered. Shattered, number one, for the loss of Stevie, but shattered. Oh, no, probably that's a wrong thing to say. I was very disappointed yep. that 
that we didn't get to do it with Stevie because that would have just been so full on and so great, you know. And then I brought out Eric Burden, who was a childhood hero of mine. He's a childhood hero of a lot of us. Yes. He had a voice. And we drove. We we flew to Adelaide. We started in Adelaide and we drove to Cairns in a Nissan Nomad. Welcome to Australia. (laughs) Welcome to Australia. (laughs) The hard way. The hard way. And we did we did dozens and dozens and dozens of shows, and he was kind of a little bit sort of what am I doing here, and a bit you know, a bit sort of nonplussed. But when we got playing, then you couldn't stop him. Mm. He'd sing for three hours, right. and we had to get him you know get the shepherd so we can get him off stage. And then he he, he at the end of the, at the end of that tour, which was pretty good, uh, Glenn Glenn Baker reviewed it really highly, and 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 Eric had sort of settled down, and 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 and. The farewell night before he flew back, we had at Diethne's, the Greek restaurant in the city, and he finally acknowledged that he had a had a reasonably good time. Right. It only took three months. Three months. Or well, four months or whatever. He was, he was from the north of England, so yeah, they're hard to impress. Yeah, very hard to impress. But you couldn't stop him once once he started singing. He'd want to be doing all the old blues stuff, and and we and of course, Boric and uh, sorry, no, um, Mal Eastick was on guitar, not Boric, yeah. uh, and and. Um, Mal Logan could play all that stuff because mm. they're steeped in the blues. So, mm. so that was good. And so it went on. It was an extraordinary uh, period mm. of time. And what I learned was you just simply ask. Mm. Good lesson. Just ask. It's, um, we could talk about this for hours. And, I, and I'm Truly. Gonna, and I'm going to ask you about your, your other thing that you're doing at the moment, which is really exciting, I think. But I've got to thank you because some years ago, you were involved in the Weekend Warriors program. True. On the northern beaches of Sydney. That was and fun. a bunch of old middle-aged guys and girls got to act out their rock and roll fantasies, of which I was one of those middle-aged guys and girls. Mm. And you brought the music back into my life such that um, I've continued ever since. To and do it, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's yeah. been great. Yeah. So I thank you for that. Oh, it was a pleasure. That was a... This is a, an exceptional um, experience. It's something I had never done before, and it was quite a challenge mm. for me. It was quite a challenge to be patient. I mean, I'm not an impatient, an overly naturally impatient person, but but at points of time, trying to get people across the line to do things was particularly hard. Mm. <laughs> so I remember. I'd, <laughs> I'd start. I'd start getting a little bit flustered with it, but but at the end of the day, the the outcome of all those amateur bands who didn't even know each other really, did no, they? No, we we're all strangers. Like six bands. So you, you go and play with him, you go and play yeah. with her, you go and sing there, you go and sing there. Yeah. You play the bass, you play the drums, off you go. It was quite a challenging concept, but that, those those nights when everyone got up and played to, to a full house at the Monavale Hotel, all the family and friends and, and did a show were really... It was pretty fun. It was it was pretty much as exciting as... as as seeing a big band play because there was so much excitement in the air. It was pretty fun. Yeah, and and the bands played well. They didn't. They weren't really crappy. Yeah, you know. But it took a lot of work. It did. So tell us about your new venture that you're doing. Well, I thought about this for a long time, and it's a one man standalone show, occasionally with a guest, and I'm going to recount the history particularly of the Party Boys, because I never stopped being asked about the Party Boys, but in more detail than I've done today. Yeah. Um, but along similar lines. And uh, I don't... I publish the occasional story on Facebook uh, with a photo of, of the Joe Walsh album or or the Swanee album that went to number one and was platinum, you know. And, and it always gets hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses. 
and messages and I just thought people are really interested in this so I thought I'll, I'll put it put a the, the framework of a spoken word show like we're doing here to your mm. podcast listeners yeah. and uh, we can do it live so a friend of mine is helping me launch it we're doing the first one he has a big 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 house and we're doing it on a balcony to about 20 or 30 people all COVID safe and all that kind of yeah. stuff and uh and then it I'll, I'll outline the history of pretty much just the party boys, a little bit about Mondo Rock and a little bit about my history, my, my life leading up to getting into these bands, mm. but, but not too much. And just talk about the party boys and there'll be quite a bit of Q and A because most of the people that are coming along or a lot of the people that are coming along would have seen the band or I've heard it. And I'm looking forward to doing this because I think it'll just be a lot of fun. Mm. It will be, you know, yeah. And just share there, and I'll hear a, I'll hear a whole lot of news stories about the party boys yeah. from these people. Yeah, from a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to give it probably probably it'd be a, an hour and a half with questions. Probably you'd probably go two hours, and um, I'm going to give each person uh, either a Dropbox link or uh, a little USB stick of the best of the party boys with a whole bunch of photos on it of the cool. party boys that, that that people wouldn't yeah, yeah. never been published. Yeah. And it'll be one, it'll be like very face to face, and I'm I'm really quite looking forward to doing that. So my friend uh, Grant McMahon saw the article in Pitwater Life, the the wonderful color article that they gave me, which was I'm very grateful for. Mm. And he said, oh, I think we should do a show. We'll, we'll start it off at my place, and that just came totally out of the blue. Mm. I said, Oh, what a great idea! So he's got about twenty or thirty of his friends. He could put more in the house, but he says we've got to stick to the rules. He said yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. don't want. You don't want to get busted on the first time no. out there. We don't want the we don't want the Victorian <laughs> Premier no. flying into state to arrest us all. No, definitely you know? not. So um, we're going to do that, and uh, I'm going to um, market that as, uh, as as a great thing for music lovers of our age, you know, forties mm. plus, mm. Uh, to take part in. So, wow, you know, cool. this could help. There could be people. This could help listening to this podcast and. Well, this is like a demo tape, really, then. Kind of, really. Yeah. Yes, isn't it? They could get in touch with you, couldn't they? They could, they could. Um, if anybody is out there and is interested in getting Paul to pop around to their place yeah. and talk about anything, uh, well, basically the genesis Tell of, the stories, uh, yeah. of uh, Australian rock, especially in the 70s and 80s and 90s, yes. um, I would highly recommend Paul to do that. And you can always get in touch with me and I can put you on to uh, Mr. Christie himself and maybe we could organise that. Maybe. It'd be great. That'd you be know, fun. groups of like 20 and 30, when, when the restrictions become a little less, it'll be a few more. Yeah. Uh, it's something I consider doing in, in pubs and clubs as well. Yeah. But equally as much, it's it's really, it's like when a band plays in a small room to a small number of people, they're right there with you. Yeah. yeah. And you can see them. They're, yeah. they're, you know, their eyes are right there. Yeah. So, so to tell the story and answer all questions about Mondo Rock, the Party Boys, my past music, all the musicians that I've worked with and the bands I've hung around. We've got a lot of interesting stories and I can answer most questions about those things. So um, to do it with uh, small groups of people who love music. It's going to be very exciting. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, Paul, Entertaining, that's the main thing. Paul, it has been absolutely fantastic having you on the couch today. I'm really delighted that we managed to uh, take two yep. and uh, get this uh, down because it's it's a fascinating story that you have. Yeah. You should write it down as well as talk it. It, um, it. it does need to be written down because you can't narrate, you can't narrate the whole story uh, 
in an hour. You can, you can cover most of the, the important, mm. no, not the important, uh, most of the um, it's really, it's just the really funky things that happen yeah, yeah. In, in two hours. But uh, you can never, you know, you need to do a Keith Richard and write the, the book. The book. Keith's book's right. great. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. I love he, his recipes. He's a Sagittarian too. Our, our birthdays are pretty close together. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Paul, Paul Christie, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show today. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, thank you once again. It's been And thank you, pleasure. Henry. It's been great to see you and touch base with you. And if anyone has any inquiries, I guess they could just email you straight away, couldn't they? They can. They yeah. know where to come. That'd be great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you.